Hey, Jordan. You ready to do this? Let's deep dive into it. No banter. We don't have time. So do you want to introduce... Too much to unpack. <laughs> there is a lot to unpack. <laughs> do you want to introduce uh, possibly just the context uh, of uh, how this discussion came about or, or how the discussion we're about to have is uh, occurring? All right. Look. I understand that emotions are flying high mm-hmm. because a guy in the US, but I haven't even looked into it because this, this is, my, this is a, a huge qualm that I have with this entire movement in Australia, which is that you know, there, there, was, there was some form of police brutality in the US. I know absolute bare bones next to nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't know anything about it is because I don't think that it's important for the average Australian to have really localized knowledge about US news cycles. Because I just need to get this out there. I think it's pathetic that a propaganda model that is not even aimed at you is the one that you're basing your reality off of. And I think that that's what's happened here when it comes to Australia and the Black Lives Matter movement here. Now, you can have a Black Lives Matter movement here but you can't be basing it with a bunch of placards that say, I can't breathe, when we're talking about two different, completely different societies with two completely different cultures. So what I think has happened is that they've superseded the ideas that Americans have about their police department and put it on Australia's police department. Mm -hmm. And as we're going to be discussing today, the statistics just don't reflect it. Mm -hmm. You're making an enemy that isn't there. It is a phantom enemy, and I think it is just a waste of everyone's time and energy. Anyway, that's, that's my summary of what we're going to be talking about. So if you don't want to listen to this conversation, I understand. Yeah, strong, strong uh, beginning, and I don't really have <laughs> you a lot. Probably should have introduced it. No, I don't. I don't really have a lot that I would necessarily disagree with. Uh, I have been looking into the situation in America a bit more, and I don't think it's worthwhile getting into that because I think there would be American commentators that would do a much better job yeah. at that. But I do agree with you in in saying that I think it's worthwhile looking into the statistics that we have here in Australia. So I thought for this podcast, let me bring up this, uh, this report. It's a Royal Commission into uh, Indigenous Deaths in Custody. Is this the Royal Commission from 91 or is this the uh, 91, report yep. from later on? When was this commission? Do you know? Which one's this? Because there's two, I think there's two, re- like okay. I was, I was, yeah, I was amazed that you looked at this report because I just dumbstruck came across the one that I think you're going to read out, but there's mm-hmm. two very important reports that you need to read if you're going to go into this. Sure. Well, I've the only one, read this one actually. Okay. Yeah. So, but the first one is just the Royal Commission from 91. And then there mm-hmm. was, I think, a summary of it from 25 years on to see if the statistics have changed or not. It's not a Royal okay. Commission, but it's kind of just collecting the data since then. I think this is this one. Sure. And the reason I did this was I also saw the protests and I thought, well, let me actually look into the statistics. And before I conclude anything, I'm just going to go through some of these statistics. Obviously, it's a 15-page report. I'm not going to look at every everything on it, but we will summarize it and lightly discuss what we read there. But this isn't anything partisan. This is a this is literally the government website, 
So yeah, this is and this is yeah, you're right. This is not one of these reports where they would just be undermining statistics. There's no reason for them. There's no incentive for them to do this. If it says something along the lines of, you know, if, if there's like vested interests in this, but really when it comes to collecting deaths in custody, mm-hmm. really you're just trying to get a snapshot of what it is so you can make accurate policy from it. And on top of that, I will just like to say this, for anybody who says that the Royal Commission was racist or whatever, or that, you know, they were just saying that the statistics were skewed in a certain way, just understand this one point about it. Pat Dodson one of the most significant Aboriginal activists in living memory, as in the one of the most significant uh, Indigenous leaders that is alive today is Pat Dodson. He was the guy that was the head of this Royal Commission. So it's not like it was skewed against the arguments that he was putting forward. And he found this to be the accurate case of the situation. So if you have a problem with me or Neil, you have a problem with Pat Dodson. Let's, let's just start with that. Okay, so the report begins. What is a death in custody? There are five bullet points here. A death, wherever occurring, of a person who is in prison custody, police custody, or youth detention. A death, wherever conferring, confer, uh, occurring, of a person whose death is caused by or contributed to by traumatic injury sustained or by lack of proper care while in such custody or detention. A death wherever occurring of a person who dies or is fatally injured in the process of police or prison officers attempting to detain that person, or a death wherever occurring of a person attempting to escape from prison, police custody, or youth detention. And then deaths in police custody are further divided into two categories. Category one, deaths in institutional settings, e.g. police stations, police vehicles, hospitals, following transfer from an institution. And category two, other deaths in custody-related police operations where officers were not in close contact with the deceased. And then there's a bit of a description on the methods they used. Um, okay, so they've uh, separated separated it for uh, between prison and police deaths. And in New South Wales, let's just go to the total here. So the total of Indigenous deaths in custody, and this is from 1991-92 to 2015-2016. There were uh, 247 Indigenous deaths, 1,056 non-Indigenous deaths. Now, the total is 1,303, and the percentage of Indigenous deaths, 19%. That's in prison. In police, 146 uh, Indigenous deaths. 595 non-Indigenous deaths, and the total number of police deaths, 741, 20% was the proportion of Indigenous deaths there. So the total, 19%, and the total deaths overall, 2,044, 393 of which are Indigenous. Now, when you first hear that, that does sound bad because Indigenous people are not a much less than 20% of the population. Would you agree? Wait, the incarcerated population. But, yeah, in, in general society, I think it's less than 2% or something. But mm-hmm. the argument that is constantly perpetrated is that uh, Indigenous people are overrepresented in the prison system, which is undeniably true. The other part that they say that there has been 434 deaths, was it? Something like that. In in overall? Since 91. Yeah, some, it's 393. 393. 
Um, that's up to 2016. So yeah. it hasn't taken into account the last four years. That's that's the stat that we're talking about now. This is one of the main stats that has just been perpetuated in a new cycle, and especially on Twitter, which is that stat. That's that's the one we're focusing on now. Okay. I think that is pretty much half of the argument, which is essentially that there has been hundreds of Aboriginal deaths in custody. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, then it goes, Indigenous deaths in prison custody... There were 247 Indigenous deaths in prison custody over the period, accounting for 19% of all prison deaths. Number and proportion of Indigenous prison deaths fluctuated, ranged between 11 to 30% each year, while the number and proportion of Indigenous people in the prison population increased from 14 to 27%. And that's from the years 2000 to 2016. Since 2003 to 4, the proportion of Indigenous deaths in prison custody has been smaller than the relative proportion of prisoners. So, so that's the key me, point. Yeah, tell that's me if the I'm, key point there. If I'm reading that correctly, relative to their uh, representation in incarceration, there's actually less less deaths. Yes. Okay. So the people that are overrepresented in terms of prison deaths is non-indigenous population. So they're the ones that are they're the majority of deaths. But if you're pie charting it up into deaths. Indigenous deaths are smaller than their pie chart. That is that is the official government statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm just seeing if it's worth reading all the. Uh, I think that that's the crucial one. Variation: the death rate of Indigenous prisoners. The death rate of Indigenous prisoners decreased overall by eighty five percent from two thousand to two thousand and six. Over the same period, the death rates of non-Indigenous prisoners decreased overall by 54%. Death rates of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous prisoners were notably lower in the second half of the reference period, that is, from 2004 to 2016, compared with the first half, 92 to 03. So that I'm just gathering from that last sentence there. It doesn't mean there potentially isn't a problem, but the trend, it's trending downwards. And massively, an 85% reduction. Mm-hmm. So the question here is, what really are these Black Lives Matter protests marching about in Australia? And I think that because most of them are holding up American placards, it's just propaganda wash. Like, okay, you can say that Indigenous people are overrepresented in the prison system. That's undeniably true. Way overrepresented by it. But this idea that there is police brutality secretly killing people because of their race in prisons is not true. Because uh, in in the Royal Commission, what they actually discussed, they looked at 99 deaths Mm -hmm. over the period. I think it was during the Royal Commission, actually, because the Royal Commission went for four years. And to say that the Royal Commission was, you know, biased or skewed in any way, yeah, I mean, obviously no institution is perfect, but it just fundamentally doesn't... It shows that you don't understand how a Royal Commission works. A Royal Commission means that you have access to every document there is. Everybody has, like, the most boss barristers and lawyers on their side looking at all of these different things. They've got, like... They call in any expert that they want into Parliament, and they have to go. It is, like, the highest law of the land is a Royal Commission. Sure. It's absolutely, like, tantamount. These are just... Again, these are just the statistics. They're just the statistics. And again, these are statistics that were collected and analysed by Pat Dodson. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that out of the 99 deaths that they analysed in prison, and this is before 91, which is why you always see in the news that they're always saying that since 1991, there's been you know 393 deaths or whatever it is. Um, but before that is the reason that they're looking at it is because of the Royal Commission. Now, the Royal Commission found that out of the 99 deaths 
that were in incarceration or in custody, um, out of those 99 deaths, not one was a result of police brutality. Not one. This is a royal commission. And this was previous to... This is previous to these statistics. So in the 80s. This is why they don't mention those statistics, because we had a royal commission into this, Mm -hmm. and it showed that there wasn't a single death as a result of police brutality. Now, I don't know why the people would even be upset about that. That's awesome. That shows that we are a far more advanced, far more civilized society than virtually every society on earth. If you did a royal commission into pretty much anywhere, even Japan, I can guarantee you there would be deaths as a result of police brutality. But like you're talking about the uh, the race that is supposedly persecuted against in the uh, in the in the prison system, and not one of them have died as a result of police brutality or foul play, as they call it. All of them, every single last one of them, was a result of either drugs or alcohol abuse. Most of the time, and people will say this again that you know, like when they say that there was external injuries, which means that an injury happened outside of prison, they might have bashed their head on a on the pavement or whatever. Um, and then they'll say, yeah, well, they're just using that as code. They just happened to bash their head and actually they got bashed in prison. Again, no, because that just completely contradicts what a royal commission would look into. And again, this was this, this was headed by five indigenous leaders, one of the courses being Pat Dodson, right? Like the, the, this, these people would be looking into this, um, you know, with, with intent and interest to try and protect any indigenous people that are getting killed in prison. Sure. So you look into so, it. Oh, sorry, but yeah. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's, there's a lot more in this document. It's, it's an amazing document, it's, yeah. It's really great. Uh, so 73% of indigenous prison deaths between, 90, between 91 and 2016 involved sentenced prisoners. 27% involved unsentenced prisoners. These proportions were relatively similar for non-indigenous prison deaths. Death rates by indigenous status and by indigenous status and legal status were calculated using available prison population data for the period 2005 to 2016. Despite considerable variation from 2005 to 2016, the death rate of indigenous unsentenced prisoners decreased overall from 0.26 to 0.16 per 100 while the death rate of non-Indigenous unsentenced prisoners decreased overall from 0.37 to 0.17 per 100. So it's higher now. 0.17. So the the death rate of non-Indigenous unsentenced prisoners um, by 2016 was 0.17 per 100, whereas for Indigenous prisoners was 0.16 per 100. Right, okay. Yeah. And again, like basically a lot of these, the same. Though. But most of these deaths, this is what people don't understand about this, right? You're imagining in your head that it's cops just beating someone to a pulp and leaving them in a cell. Mm-hmm. Most of these deaths are a result of the fact that they came in intoxicated. It gets to it deals with that later in the report. As it well. does, yeah. right? But that's that's something that really needs to be stressed. I think mm-hmm. it's not. This is not. These deaths are not a result of violence in the vast majority of instances. Uh, since 2012, the death rate of Indigenous unsentenced prisoners has been lower than that of indi- uh, Indigenous sentenced prisoners. In comparison, the death rate of non-Indigenous unsentenced prisoners has generally been higher than that of non-Indigenous sentenced prisoners, with a narrowing in this gap in recent years. Demographic characteristics. Male prison deaths consistently outnumbered female prison deaths. Won't hear the feminists talking about that, will you? <laughs> uh, oh, stepping on all the toes. On I, Rock. <laughs> 
<laughs> no stone left unturned, mate. Uh, of all Indigenous deaths and 96% of all non-Indigenous deaths. 96% are men. Okay. The overrepresentation of males in prison deaths is representative of the gender composition of the wider prison population. The So when people... I, just a little caveat here. I think when people hear something like that, and I was obviously making that point in jest, but if someone was making that point seriously, saying, oh, look how many more men are in prison, look how many more men are dying, rightfully, the other side on the culture wars or whatever you want to call it would say, well, you have to look at the behavior between men and women, and there are huge behavioral differences between men and women that lead to more More men men being in prison. prison. Mm. So these statistics don't just exist in a void. We have to also no. analyze the behavior. And yes, then there is an analysis to be had about history and things like that. But to just suggest it is entirely based on either race or with many other of these cultural issues just on gender, it's, it's simplistic and it's not a proper analysis of the data. But anyway, uh, the age profile of indigenous prison deaths was younger than non-indigenous prison deaths. This reflects in part the younger age profile of indigenous prisoners, uh, the demographic. This is, this is just all about the age. I, do you want to hear? I don't think the age is particularly relevant. No, I want to. No, I think that actually the age is actually relevant. It is okay. Okay, okay age, sure. Yeah. Okay, the age profile of indigenous prison deaths was younger than. Uh, just said that younger compared with non-indigenous prisoners over the period. The mean age at death for indigenous prisoners was thirty-seven point eight, compared with forty-five point three for non-indigenous prisoners. 89% of deaths among Indigenous prisoners occurred before the age of 55, compared with 69% of deaths among non-Indigenous prisoners. Almost one in five Indigenous deaths involved a prisoner less than 25 years of age. So there is a big disparity in the average age there, the average age of Indigenous prisoners. Which is actually there. comparative with the statistics of Indigenous people living, I think, on average 10 years less than non-Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. The mean age at death for Indigenous prisoners increased over the 25-year period from 27.3 years. Uh, from 27.3 years, the mean age at death for non-Indigenous prisoners also increased from 36.6 to 58.6. That's a big jump. Increases in age at death for prisoners appear indicative of the aging prisoner population. Okay. So those are the statistics on the ages. How, I don't think the – how do the ages play a – I mean, they're worthwhile noting, but well, do you because, think they – Yeah, different death reasons, right? So if somebody is dying older when they're in jail, it would suggest that they're dying of health issues. Sh- sure. It's more right? likely that they'd be dying of health issues. Or they mental could health also, issues. They could also be more susceptible to a traumatic blow or something like that. It's because they're older. I suppose that's true, but that would also just argue against the case that there is police brutality that exists if Indigenous people are dying younger. But the, but I think it is just it, it actually adds weight to the point that if you were going to be making like a Black Lives Matter argument, mm-hmm. you would be talking about life expectancy of Indigenous people. You wouldn't be talking about they're, they're like you know people are actively going out of their way to kill them. Yeah, you know? and I think that that like it, what that would suggest if they're dying younger. Again, it would suggest that there is a rife drug and alcohol problem, which is just an indisputable fact. If you listen to any Indigenous leader, they will tell Mm -hmm. you the thing that is destroying Indigenous communities is drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And, I mean, it goes without saying, we shouldn't even have to say this, but our analysis of these statistics and um, 
and going against the narrative that there is police brutality um, aimed at Indigenous people. We're not saying that there aren't problems at all with the Indigenous community. No, and there are massive, other things that massive problems without a doubt. So but just want to add again, that. Yeah, it's just like you should be shifting. If you actually care about indigenous issues, you should have an accurate snapshot of what is affecting these people. If that's if that's actually your motivation, and not to get likes on Instagram, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you didn't pl- you didn't post the black square, Jordan. You're, uh, you're yeah, I'm a monster. You're part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. White what? girls messaging me, telling me I'm racist because I didn't post a black square. Thanks for that. Well, they've Pre- got a point new. Appreciated it. <laughs> um, cause of death. The majority of Indigenous prison deaths were due to natural causes, 58%. Okay, so that's from the whole period. Uh, cause of death, uh, the majority of these deaths were from natural causes, uh, followed by hanging. And suicide is reduced a lot. This is another reason why... Uh, deaths have declined so sharply in prisons is basically because they've just gone in and looked at all these hanging spots in each cell and thought, okay, you could tie uh, a, a, you know, a rope around those bars, we'll get rid of those bars. Yeah. A lot of that. So 32% were hanging, 12 deaths were due to drugs and or alcohol, 4% were due to external trauma. So those are the ones we should be looking at, right? The 4% that are due to external trauma. Which again, tiny... And we, we, it doesn't even specify whether that external trauma came from another prisoner. Don't say if it came from another prisoner, but I think because these are just the statistics about custody in general, right? I believe so, yes. I would imagine, I don't know if it's in part of the report, but I would imagine that most of those are a result yes. of being Cust- in prison. Prison custody. Yes. Prison, cu- no, prison custody or cust- like just uh, police custody? This is, no, police custody comes afterwards in the report. So this is prison custody? Yes. Right, okay. Yeah. Leading cause of death among Indigenous prisoners was either natural causes or hanging. For each year, uh, deaths due to natural causes surpassed hanging deaths. This pattern was similar for non-Indigenous prison deaths. Okay. Deaths from natural causes. So the, the death rate of Indigenous prisoners, which died of natural causes, varied between 0.08 and 0.15 per 100 each year. The average natural de- natural death rate of Indigenous prisoners was 1.5 times the non-Indigenous rate between 92 and 03. From 04 to 16, the pattern reversed, with the average natural death rate of non-Indigenous prisoners 1.4 times the Indigenous rate. And then that correlates with the uh, average age of non-Indigenous prisoners going up. So that makes sense. Mm. As they get older, they're probably going to die of more natural causes. Mm. Hanging deaths. The hanging death rate of Indigenous prisoners dropped from 0.16 per 100 to zero deaths. The hanging... Hang on. Sorry, I think I misread that. The hanging death... From 2001 to 2006, the hanging death rate of Indigenous prisoners dropped from 0.16 per 100 to zero deaths. The hanging rate of non-Indigenous prisoners also decreased during this time from 0.1 to 0.03 per 100. From 2005 to 2006, the hanging death rate for Indigenous and non-Indigenous prisoners remained at 0.05 or less per 100. Hanging death rates decreased substantially among Indigenous prisoners, which resulted in changes to the rate ratio of Indigenous hanging death rates. For example, from 92 to 03, the average hanging death rate of Indigenous prisoners was 1.2 times the non-Indigenous rate. Uh, 
while from 04 to 16, the average hanging death rate of non-Indigenous prisoners was two times the Indigenous rate. Okay, so again, a huge uh, downward trend. Indigenous hanging death rates by legal status were calculated using available prison population data for the period 03 to 16. Despite considerable variation from 03 to 16, the hanging death rate of in Indigenous unsentenced prisoners decreased overall by 93% from 0.41 to 0.03 per 100. Hanging death rates of Indigenous sentenced prisoners followed a more stable pattern over the period 2002 uh, to 2016. Since 2012, the hanging death rate of Indigenous sentenced prisoners has been similar to that of Indigenous unsentenced prisoners. So, again, no disparity. Cause of death by gender. Um, do you want to read? Do you, should we analyze how? No, gender's fine. Different genders. I mean, we died? all know it as we speak. Well, I'd imagine that uh, women would die higher in suicide rates, but um, yeah, I don't think that that's really important. Yeah, because we all know, like, it's just men die more in prison. A larger proportion of indigenous females de female deaths uh, over the time period were due to hanging. So there, there, there are three paragraphs on that one. So just for everyone listening, we are skipping that part. Um, cause of death by age. Um, the leading cause of death, the, le the leading cause of indigenous deaths in prison custody varied depending on age. Over the time period, hanging was the leading cause of death among those aged less than 25, accounting for 76% of such deaths. Among those aged 25 to 39, Natural causes was the leading cause of death, followed by hanging. The majority of deaths among prisoners aged 40 to 54 years and those uh, aged 55 years and over were from natural causes. Okay. Manner of death. While the cause of death refers to the medical cause of death, the manner of death refers to the accountability of the death or how the death came about. So this is the important bit. For example, if a person dies from natural causes, the manner of death is also... Natural causes, if a person dies from other causes of death, e.g. external trauma, the manner of death is recorded as one of the following, either self-inflicted, justifiable homicide, unlawful homicide, or accidental. Okay. The manner of death in 58% of Indigenous prison deaths was natural causes equal to the 58% of uh, Indigenous prison deaths attributable to natural causes. Hang on. The manner of death in 58% of Indigenous prison deaths was natural causes Equal to, yeah, okay, so they just repeated that point. A further 35% of death were self-inflicted. Eight deaths were accidental. 2% classified as unlawful homicide. And less than 1% was a justifiable homicide. So there are six. 2% were classified as unlawful homicide. I mean, that's, that's really, that's terrible, but six... And on top of that, those six are probably inside prison jobs. Yeah, it doesn't specify whether it was the guards or other prisoners. And from everything that I've heard from talking to inmates that you know work in prisons and stuff like that, yeah, there's on, on really high cases, you will have some kind of level of corruption where guards might start poisoning an inmate or something when you're, you're talking like really high organized crime level, mm -hmm. but unless they're part of a mob, usually they're getting killed by other 
inmates for whatever reason, just like an outrage burst or just like little gang wars in between prison. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that you would have like a guard risk their job by killing someone. Yeah. I have read a few books that suggest it's something close to anarchy in there. Yeah. There are a lot of gangs that are divided by racial lines, actually. Mm. And Always. it's pretty brutal. Yeah, absolutely. It's, good bo- uh, it's called Australia's Worst Prisons. It's about Long Bay Jail, but it's a really good book. And there's a whole series of them. Um, okay, self-inflicted deaths. Don't need to go into that, nah, do we? Nah, that's okay. Fine. Okay, now this is the this is the the big one: indigenous deaths in police custody. So that that was all the that was analysis of the data of indigenous deaths in prison. There's no there is no disparity. If anything, there are there are statistics that non-indigenous prisoners excuse against no, yeah indi- are actually yeah. more at risk. Yeah. Okay, indigenous deaths in police custody. It should be noted that it is not currently possible to calculate. Rates of death in police custody due to the absence of reliable data on the number of people placed in police custody each year and the number of people who come into contact with police in custody-related operations. Okay, that's a fair point. So we will uh, look at some of these statistics and understand that they may not be perfect. But let's look at them anyway. There were 146 Indigenous deaths in police custody over the time period accounting for 20% of the total police custody deaths. The number of Indigenous deaths in police custody each year was relatively small, with no clear trend over the reference period. The largest number, 11, of Indigenous deaths occurred in um, 2003 to 2005, no, in the years 2002-3 and 2004-5, and the lowest, 1, in 2013-14. Just over half of Indigenous deaths in police custody during the time period were classified as Category 2 deaths, that is, deaths in which officers were not in close contact with the deceased. The remaining 44% were classified as Category 1, that is, deaths in which officers were in close contact with the deceased. So more than half occurred where the officers were not in close contact. Now, I'm really being hypercritical here, uh, many people might say that, well, if a death does occur in police custody, it is the police that are then writing the report. They would always be biased towards themselves. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. What, what would you say to something like that? I would say, and I, I do need to stress this point because I know that people will be hitting that over and over. I would say that that just is completely contrary to how Royal Commission works. And I'll just put it this way. The Liberals set up a Royal Commission against the unions in 2014, I think it was, and they put up Justice Dyson Hayden. Justice Dyson Hayden is a known card-carrying Liberal. So it is a, you know, a, a card-carrying Liberal heading this Royal Commission into union corruption, the biggest enemy of the Liberal Party, going for years at the end of it, out of the entire union movement, they found one criminal in one of the largest organisations in the country, and they like, and they deliberately skewed the uh, royal commission as much as they possibly could in the direction of what the liberals wanted them to find. Is it fair to compare the two, though? Because that's a completely different issue. Exactly, but this is the whole point. It just it's it's about the design of the royal commission, and in the royal commission's case, 
1991, it would have been skewed in the way to find what Indigenous elders wanted it to find, which I don't know if they wanted to find deaths in custody or whatever, but like they would definitely be looking at it from the perspective of Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like... I don't know, Andrew Bolt was leading it. Mm -hmm. It was Pat Dodson leading it. It's a royal commission. And that, so even if a royal commission is skewed against you, mm -hmm. that, is how, that, that is how it works because it's just the very institution of it is that anyone in it is allowed to take out any documents that they want. They're allowed to cross-examine anyone that they like. It's, it's like the, it's the purest form of court there is, really. So they would have spoken to some of these police officers who would have been filing the reports? Of they would the have taken them all in, everybody, their seniors, anyone that they wanted to talk to, they would have talked to. It went for four years. Mm -hmm. And we had five people on it. All of them were Indigenous rights activists who were heading this commission. Um, so to suggest that the cops, you know, like other ones writing up the reports and that they're just skewing all of the evidence. I mean, look, that's conspiracy. Where is your evidence for that? Mm -hmm. It might be true, but really this is just your imagination at this point. There's nothing to support that idea. What does support the idea is the exact opposite, which is the, the police are going by the book. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there is police corruption. It happens. But the thing is that most criminals that are uh, put into jail, they're not part of some, you know, organized crime mob that has, you know, you know, sleepers on the inside and stuff like that. It's not, this isn't what we're dealing with. Do you think if there was a 50-50 situation where the police officer, uh, the actions of a police officer did result in a death in custody, they wouldn't be fully honest with the uh, may potentially wrongful actions they may well, have engaged in i mean look this is the whole thing right like if, if you have maybe that's true maybe some and, of them were lying and then I'd, and then sorry then i'd add if if that is the case how do you then combat against something like that if there's one police of uh, well i don't I'm, i don't know how it, exactly it operates but if there's one police officer or if there's there's two and then a, a death occurs and they have written a report that is maybe not entirely false but it skews in their direction should there be an independent body or should there be some sort of uh, investigative process that is uh, from a separate organization where well, we're able to get to the well, that's, as much as possible? I mean, that is what we had with the Royal Commission. That is exactly what we had with it. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that, yeah, okay, obviously there's always just going to be like, it's, it's the same argument of just like, there's a few bad apples. That's definitely true. Right. I mean, like, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if that is true. I'm just saying if, if you're going to be as generous as possible to the other side of the argument, you could say that maybe there's a few of them lying about it. Right. But they in the findings of the 91 Royal Commission, they found that the way to reduce deaths was basically to change a few laws in the criminal code. So it was no longer an arrestable offense for public drunkenness for instance, right? As soon as these things were implemented, just these tiny little tweaks to the law, mm -hmm. deaths halved. Deaths halved. So it's obvious that it was just like, it's just like a, I can't remember what it's called, like over-policing or over-regulation in the legal system. Mm -hmm. This is not like a human-induced, Again, it's, it's, it's weird conspiracy in the mind of just the, this idea that cops go out of their way on a daily basis thinking about mm. what Aboriginal can I kill or beat up today? Yeah. It just doesn't exist. And I'm not suggesting that either. I'm just basically, like I said, trying to play devil's advocate. Right, here. right, right. But like, I'm glad that you are because it's, these are the arguments that you will be hit with against this. And I mean, if, if cops are targeting people with darker skin 
who may look indigenous, this would affect me. So this is something I would want to look into. <laughs> if it, and and they well, there's definitely word on the street is that they um, target Lebanese people, at least in Sydney and Melbourne. But that's also from Lebanese people. Exactly. So everybody oh, always bro, says this, cops right? Are all, cops are such dogs, man. <laughs> There's always just this thing of like everybody has this grievance because they're always just seeing it from their perspective, right? So everybody just goes through life with, with through their own eyes being like, I'm being victimized or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, again, there, there is something closer to an objective reality. And these are the collective statistics. That's okay. really what you have to go by in life when you're making policy decisions. And as a result of making going by the statistics, they're able to do what these protesters are wanting, which is a reduction in Indigenous deaths. Mm-hmm. And then the last point in that particular paragraph was that uh, when it came to the percentage that uh, of uh, deaths in police custody uh, where the police were in close contact versus where they were not in close contact... It was virtually the same for uh, people who were non-Indigenous. Okay, demographic characteristics. Male deaths in police custody generally outnumbered female deaths in police custody. No surprises there. Uh, With male deaths comprising 86% of all Indigenous and 95% of all non-Indigenous deaths. While police custody population figures are not available, this gender ratio is likely representative of the gender composition of the arrestee population. The age profile of Indigenous deaths in police custody was younger than non-Indigenous deaths. Indigenous deaths in police custody most commonly involved those aged less than 25 years, followed by those aged 25 to 39 years. Non-Indigenous deaths in police custody most commonly involved those aged 25 to 39 years. The mean age at death for Indigenous persons in police custody was 29.9 years compared with 34.6 years for non-Indigenous persons in police custody. Okay, cause of death. Over half of Indigenous deaths in police custody uh, resulted from external slash multiple trauma, the majority of which were due to injuries sustained during motor vehicle pursuits, 62%. Okay, so I'm just um, hearing that and thinking to myself, if there's a vehicle pursuit occurring, I mean, how much negligence can the police... I mean, unless the police are literally running people over, I'm not... It sounds like there would have been a crash or something like that. Deaths resulting from motor motor vehicle pursuits accounted for almost one-third of Indigenous deaths in police custody. This proportion was similar for non-Indigenous deaths in police custody. Again, no disparity. The next... Most common cause of Indigenous deaths in police custody over the period 92 to 2016 was natural causes. Most of these were due to heart disease or related cardiac ailments, as was the case for deaths in prison custody. Okay, so 21% of the deaths were from natural causes. Okay. Uh, As was the case for deaths in prison custody, a small number of deaths were due to stroke, respiratory conditions, and epilepsy. Indigenous deaths from natural causes most commonly occurred in those aged 25 to 39. A higher proportion of Indigenous compared with non-Indigenous deaths in police custody resulted Mm. from natural causes. So 21% compared to 8%. Now, that's a big big disparity. But again, I, I, I fail to see how 
police negligence would result in an, in a natural cause of death. I mean, um, there there is talk of when when I've heard. Uh, I don't know how true this is, but when we're talking about really remote communities, there uh, people are locked in police cars for much longer than they should be, and the heat is a lot stronger. But that, that yes, that could be a result of police negligence. It also could just be a result of a lack of resources. It's hard to say. Well, I've well actually because uh, Ali from the other podcast, he's doing, he's studying law at the moment, and they're actually looking into these cases. These are remote communities that they're putting them into paddy wagons, right? There has been changes to this as soon as these deaths started occurring. But this was not murder. At the very, there was no intent there to kill these people. It was they were getting cooked in the car, and it's like it's a horrible death. I do. I'm so Atrocious. grateful. I'm probably not going to die that way, right? Mm-hmm. That that honestly sounds like one of the worst ways you can possibly go. It's not murder. It's it's like you know a, a really really unfortunate accident. It's mm-hmm. completely different. It's not murder, and it's not murder because of their race. That's the that's the key point because that's what people are protesting. Right. The racial element more than anything else. Uh, less than ten percent of indigenous deaths in police custody were due to hanging. Uh, no indigenous hanging deaths have occurred since two thousand and nine. Non-Indigenous hanging deaths decreased from 20 during the first half of the reference period to 9 during the second half. Similarly, no non-Indigenous hanging deaths have occurred since 2010. The number of Indigenous deaths resulting from gunshot wounds was low over the 92 to 2016 period. Uh, Of the total 13 Indigenous deaths resulting from gunshot wounds, 8 were police shootings and 5 were self-inflicted. 9% of Indigenous deaths in police custody were caused by gunshot wounds compared with 35% of non-Indigenous deaths. Okay, so eight were police shootings. Now, again, that's bad. We don't want anyone dying at the hands of police, but then this also doesn't doesn't say um, what were the conditions leading to that shooting. Mm. Don't know if the police had reasonable suspicion that they may have a firearm, something like that. But I think it goes into it here. Okay, almost half of Indigenous deaths in police custody, uh, which were due to motor vehicle... uh, Motor vehicle... 19... The other type of... Sorry, hang on. Almost half of Indigenous deaths in police custody over the time period... uh, 57%, 57%, which were due to MVPs, and 19% to some other type of pursuit, e.g. foot pursuit. The most, the next most common manner of death was natural causes, followed by self-inflicted deaths. Less than 10% were due to justifiable homicide and unlawful homicide. So unlawful homicide, which is the one uh, that would be the one in question, right? Eight over a 25-year period. Again, that's... Tragic, that's terrible, that shouldn't happen. But it's also understandable in the pursuit of law and order. There is always going to be, it's, look, it's a messy business. Enforcing the law 
uh, and just the to and fro of it. Obviously, the cops are going to make bad judgment of error. Um, a lot of the times, I, I would imagine that it was actually the criminal's fault for kind of just provoking a police officer who's trying to get you to stop down. But like, you know, every now and then the, the cop might just be a little too trigger happy or something. But the stat of that happening, what is that? What is that every year if there's eight over the last 25? It's like and once that's four almost every three years or something. Yep. It's not this pandemic. It's at, at like no. really at the most. It's just a. It's a. Uh, it it just proves that yeah the whole thing of just law and order is messy. That's that's really all that's showing. However, there would still be some follow up questions, such as those police who were found to have committed an unlawful homicide. Uh, what was the process that then took place? Um, a big part of the protest, particularly in America, is the lack of accountability that seems to occur. But look, I can't comment on the US. I don't know. But I do know that training in the in Australia to become a police officer is much more rigorous than it is in the US. And there's a reason that Australia has a high favorability rating of our police force. You don't just get that for, you know, propagandic purposes or whatever. It's just that the community understands that police officers in general uh, interact with the public usually in good faith. There's Look, if you look at the approval rating of the US and their police officers, I, I'm going to bet you that it is way lower than what it is in Australia. Australia has... They're up there with ambos and mm-hmm. firefighters. They're like really respected public servants in this country. It's... I don't know. I... I Personally, don't like the fact that they're just being used as this scapegoat. People who get paid what, like fifty grand a year to put their lives on the line daily. Um, it's dude. I, I really don't I, like where it's going. I agree. And when you hear slogans like "defund the police," what the hell? That's a scary concept. I know. What? What? Yeah. The, the thing. The, the the thin blue line that is separating, like you know, an ordered society and a chaotic society. You want to defund that. If anything, that actually, when we talk about privilege, that comes from a place of privilege because it seems to be rich people who live in gated neighborhoods. Yeah, they're they the ones calling cops. to defund the police because they don't need the police. They don't experience crime in the same way people from poorer neighborhoods do. If there are neighborhoods that need the police the most, it's poor neighborhoods. They need police and they need good police um conclusion in 1991 uh the royal commission concluded indigenous people were no more likely to die in custody than non-indigenous people but were significantly significantly more likely to be arrested and imprisoned same remains true today um you'd have to then analyze how much crime they commit relative to the proportion that they are being imprisoned before you could make a judgment on something like that to see if there is a disparity uh, indigenous people are now less likely than non-indigenous people to die in custody. This is this is the the Royal Commission. This isn't Sky News or anything like that. Largely due to a decrease in the death rate of indigenous prisoners from 2000 to 2006. Since uh, 04, non-indigenous people have been on average 1.6 times more likely to die in prison custody than indigenous people. More recently, there's been a narrowing in this gap, largely due to an increase in the death rate of indigenous prisoners 
from 2013 to 14, yet the death rate of Indigenous prisoners has been consistently lower than that of non-Indigenous prisoners since 2004. Coinciding with the overall decrease in the death rate of Indigenous prisoners is the decrease in the hanging death rate of Indigenous prisoners falling below the natural death rate from 2003. Since 2004, the hanging death rate of Indigenous prisoners has been lower or the same as that of non-Indigenous prisoners. In contrast, the natural death rate of Indigenous prisoners has remained relatively stable across the years. Um, again, this is just concluding everything we've already read through. So let me just skim through it really quickly. And uh, this is, a, look, you can all look this up. This is on the government website. Well, less can be said about... And rates cannot currently be calculated. Some clear patterns have emerged. Between 92 and 2016, 146 Indigenous deaths in police custody occurred, representing 20% of all deaths in police custody. One in every two Indigenous deaths in police custody were classified as an accident, followed by deaths from natural causes and self-inflicted deaths. One in two accidental deaths were due to motor vehicle pursuits, and one in five were due to some other type of pursuit. The number of Indigenous hanging deaths in police custody was relatively small, with no Indigenous hanging deaths occurring since 09. The number of indigenous deaths resulting from gunshot wounds was also relatively small and notably smaller proportionally than non-indigenous deaths in police custody. As with prison deaths, the age profile of indigenous deaths in police custody was younger than that of non-indigenous deaths in police custody. That's it. And that's the end of that. Yep. So that's it completely dispels the myth that uh, you know, there, there is this racist cabal specifically located within the police force targeting in Indigenous people in Australia, which mm. obviously you should have been very suspect of to begin with when you are protesting essentially something that is not even in this country in the first place. That's that's really the crux of this. Um, and that's fine if you want to protest that, but then to add this extra element... Yeah. It's disingenuous. Yeah, I know. I like really these And again, no one none of us are suggesting that there aren't issues to be addressed when it comes to other disparities with the indigenous community. No, but, but these but the, these statistics show that there is no greater likelihood for an indigenous person to die in in prison or in police custody. Yeah. That's the crux of that. There's other things that you're talking about. I don't know. Now The Guardian just released an article saying that uh, if you have marijuana possession, you are four times more likely to be convicted of it as an Indigenous person than a non-Indigenous person. But again, th this is a statistic that I think that if you really bunkered down into it, there'd be a lot of external factors surrounding it, such as the fact that, look, when it comes to remote indigenous communities, this is just a legal thing that happens there. They just don't recognise, uh, you know, Australian law and they kind of just work against it and whatever. And you can say, yeah, that's because it's their land and whatever and they don't have to recognise it. That's all well and good. But that all includes into that statistic, right? So if they're going into court and they're being, uh, you know, uh, deliberately oppositional to the court system as opposed to somebody who's going in there with a lawyer and being like extremely humble and apologetic to the judge. Obviously, there's going to be some disparities there, right? Mm -hmm. There's all of these other factors in that that I think if you really hunker down into it, I reckon even that would go away. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is. But really, if we're going from 
people like start getting charges to their name as a result of marijuana possession as opposed to people are getting actively killed in the custody system of Australia. That there's a huge difference there to begin with. If if that's the next line down that they can find a statistic out to say that, you know, there's a problem here. I mean, really, like it's it's gotten a lot weaker, hasn't it? Mm. And then the other thing is, look, this is an undeniable fact. Yes. Indigenous people in the uh, in the prison system are overrepresented, and they are overrepresented by a huge margin. Because if it was just a perfect pie chart, they'd probably be about two percent of the prison population. Mm-hmm. They're about twenty something percent. Yeah, I think. yeah. But then there are so many other factors that can contribute to that. There's so many, and more the factors. fact that there is, you're not even allowed to discuss those factors. You have to talk about. Um, the poverty rate, the crime rate, which is the big one, which is the one brought up in America as well. Um, different behaviours, cultures, all that sort of thing needs to be discussed. Yeah. And, and so, it's so, not. So there's no way that this is just a result of judges and cops specifically thinking about how to fuck over Aboriginals. That's It's such a fantasy. And it's a weird fantasy to have as well, especially when there's so many problems in this country. I was just thinking about it. The fact that nobody was really marching during the bushfires that RFS funding and National Parks funding had been like, you know, cut to the bone in this state. It shows again that nobody's actually living in the country that they, they did, live in. There wasn't much, wasn't there? It was against climate change. And again, yeah. this is the thing that I don't like about protests. They're always extremely nebulous. And when I went to the climate protest march, I remember telling you about it where I was just like talking to the average person on the street. They didn't know anything about climate change. Yep. It was again, just a thing of the, you know, the media that they were consuming was saying climate change is real. And that's all they knew about it. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I happen to agree with them and they are absolutely right because this overwhelming scientific consensus, just like these stats, extremely neutral stats. It's exactly the same thing with climate change, but I've looked into it, right? I feel like if you're going to protest something, you should be at least informed in the thing that you're protesting. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is exactly the same case with this. The thing that I was thinking about, sorry, you go on. People have seen that video of George Floyd and rightfully are very emotional. It was, uh, was quite hard to watch. Um, but when you look, you have to look at the overall trends and statistics before you come up with these conclusions that one particular race is just being hunted down. Yeah. Because the statistics just don't show Don't show, show it. They don't. Yeah. And it's it's really disingenuous. Um, and yeah. I would also just like to... I know Wes specifically trying to stay on Australian, the Australian culture here, but in America... When basically everyone has a gun, how much more stress does that put onto police officers? Mm. I once talked about this. Okay, if I'm a police officer, knowing that, well, 58 police officers in America do die every year, and I was trying to uh, interrogate or at least talk to a suspect, and they were being aggressive, and they reached down under their shirt. Now, I don't know if they have a gun or not, but I'm not risking that. Yeah, It's a messy situation. And again, I'm not saying the police are perfect. I don't know a lot about the American situation, but I know in in that situation, if I was the cop, what do you, what do you want them to do? Risk death? Mm. I mean, this is... Law and order is messy. You're mm. dealing with violent criminals. Mm. And if anything, it's the poor neighbourhoods that I don't know much about remote Indigenous communities, but... 
it's the poorest neighborhoods, um, even in Australia, that need the police the most. Yep. Well, obviously, right? Because that's where all the crime's going down. Yeah. It's going to be poorer suburbs. Mm. And so they're really the ones that are, you know, keeping some semblance of normality in life there. And yeah, obviously, that's that's the other thing that I'm always thinking of. With no actual knowledge of the US, that's the first thing that came to my mind as well, is that even if the cops, like, if, if the job paid well, which it doesn't, it's, it's a very low-paying job in the US because just like everything else, the entire public service of the US has just been eaten in and is collapsing in on itself. And I think that this is actually really what people are protesting about. It's like... Look, all yeah. the problems that you're actually angry about, which I think is the fact that you know they they, they don't have health care, they they have like terrible job security. Well, I think there's all these things. Forty I think, million unemployed. Yeah, right. And like when you're in the US, you can see it in their eyes. They're just a lot more stressed and panicked than you are. And it's like, dude, you work in a hotel. Maybe just go get another job. But in that society, I don't think that that's really that plausible and tangible there because there's just such a larger population there that's a lot more poor and desperate Wait, what, so they're holding on to like little shitty jobs getting paid nothing what was that point you made about someone working in a hotel sorry like you, you talk to like a concierge at a hotel oh, okay, in the yeah. u.s and like here they're kind of just like hi hey god yeah and they're just like hello sir how are you today and it's just like why are you so tense I swear it's just there's a okay. lot of tension in the US. I think guns is part of it. But I also think it's just really the US in a lot of ways is more or less just a third world country posing as a developed nation. There's a huge underclass in that country. Mm-hmm. And I think that they have a lot of tension on the fact that they can't even afford to live properly, right? Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of this you know, outburst that's happening in the streets, I think a lot of that is due to that is due to this feeling of the average the average American is not comfortable. Hmm. That'd be my, like, guess. And when you embed a narrative into uh, young people, young black people, young minorities in general, who are growing up in these poor areas, that the system is against you, you're never going to make it anyway, white people are always going to try to hunt you down, which the statistics simply just do not show, why would they want to try? Why would they want to try and succeed? Why would they study? Because if they think everyone is against, against them... them. Of course they're going to end up in a gang selling crack. Because mm. what other option do they have? Th- this victim mentality, is, it's, it's killing people. That's what's killing people in poor neighbourhoods. Yeah. Well, uh, now, there, there are issues to be spoken about. Don't get me wrong. But you cannot just instill that kind of a mentality, especially into young people. Yeah, look, I would say that that's definitely a... a it's definitely a point that you don't want to be saying that because exactly what you said, like it's definitely instilling that into their mind. But I, dude, I think that like just in their own communities, there is just that deep set belief anyway. Right. So I don't think that it's like, even, even if like uh, the media is pushing that on or whatever, it's going to reflect that narrative. But I think that, uh, but it's, hitting, it it, to- it's coming to middle-class people now as well. And anyone who isn't white, is going to grow up with that kind of a mentality. Right, right. Well, I'm never going to succeed because of my skin colour. There's all that kind of... Look, there are disparities and there may even be more hurdles that you will face and there will be a time when you can face that and challenge that. But especially in youth, the last thing you want to instill into young people, regardless of class, is that they are a victim and that the system will ensure that they'll never make it. Because... 
you're not going to, especially, yeah, you're right. Because when you're young, that is really when you're supposed to be putting in the effort. And after that, you kind of just get into a groove in your older age. So if you're really robbing them of that little 10-year gap that they have where they don't have a mortgage, they don't have kids or anything, yeah, you've kind of just destined them to the cycle that they're currently in. You want to be selling... The, yeah, you're right. You want to be selling the narrative that you can, uh, you know, exceed your circumstances. Hmm. That that really is in your hands. Yeah. But there's and like all Culture these- and class, a huge determinants in that as well. It's kind of similar to the wage gap debate which isn't even a wage gap it's the difference in um average hourly earnings when you take into account overall income between men and women and there's nothing to say that sex discrimination doesn't account for maybe some portion of that but when you analyze the different behaviors the different choices of men and women it's not that accounts for most of it yeah Mm. and my guess would be uh, when you analyze the different behaviors and norms of uh, various racial groups in America, in Australia, in any uh, Western country, that would account for a lot of the disparities. Yep. I mean, they say, well, you know, if you're a white man, it's so easy to succeed and everything's going your way. Asian men out-earn white men in America. Well, it's, yeah, it's a cultural thing. So culture, it, it, I'm not saying that maybe race... Uh, it, it, plays no role at all but can we talk about culture without being accused of being part of the problem well see this is the difference though when it comes to look for for indigenous people for instance you you have to extend different olive branches to indigenous people than you do to immigrants no yeah i'll i'll definitely admit that like when you take into account the historical context it is a different boat it's a different boat but it's also the thing of in these remote indigenous communities, I think this is something that people don't really understand is that, yes, okay, there is crippling poverty in these countries. Like that, that, that is really kind of like these little pockets of a third world country within Australia is these, is these very remote indigenous communities, right? But there is also a different mentality there. So, for instance, you know, most people on Centrelink there, for instance, are... Uh, it's, it's kind of just like an external thing. They might be spending it on, say, I don't know. Like, it, it's not a thing of, like, uh, can I uh, bludge money off the government or whatever. If, if they were getting the money from Centrelink, it'd be fine. If they're not getting the money from Centrelink, they're fine. This is what I hear from lawyers that work in these communities, right? Because, they, dude, they go out and hunt. It's, it's like a different mentality when you're in the Northern Territory than it is to, like, living in the city. And even when you're talking about rural populations that aren't indigenous like white people or whatever when you're talking about like in the bush they do the same shit as well i just be like yeah i just went on like a four-day hunting trip i've got enough meat for the next like five weeks or whatever like there's there's different goals and aspirations okay. there right yeah. so like that's, their that's idea fair. of like success or whatever is completely different to ours yeah. i think this is just part of that 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 is True. their culture they, they just like dude they like living in the bush if you're like living out there or whatever but that's there fair. is things that you need to eliminate but these are not things that are that's fair i didn't think of that i'm mainly mm, placing a sort of metropolitan it's a metropolitan outlook but obviously onto, you're going to put that right them. yeah but this is the thing like when you're saying that like you know uh i don't know do, do you want to become a doctor or something like that dude these remote indigenous communities don't 
They, they don't have they don't have that inclination. They kind of, and uh, dude, in a lot of ways, I really, uh, I'm uh, I'm 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 envious of it because like it's just like when you watch. It's so pathetic that you have to say this, but like when you watch the YouTube channel like Primitive Man or whatever, and you're just sitting there and they're just like making fucking he's trying to see if he can make like steel arrows out of a fire or something i'm just like dude i'd way prefer to be doing that than what i'm doing right now that looks fucking mad like just just living on the land is fun you know yeah stopping you i suppose that's true but the thing is that these communities what actually is really bad for it and i think that it's something that is just like a win-win that should be happening is right it's just like the liberals got 500 million dollars out of the budget from the indigenous population now this is not because they hate aboriginal people i will extend this olive branch to the liberals and everybody else in parliament i'll even say this about one nation Uh, like because i've talked to staffers in politics right no one in parliament is like actively hates indigenous people no sitting member is sitting is thinking about it in that terms everybody wants to help indigenous people the idea that there's people out there trying to destroy their lives, it doesn't exist. It's kind of the same thing as like when India just took over like these islands of these very remote people that we didn't know existed until the 60s, right? Now, this was after colonization. The Indian government was not trying to fuck these people over. It's just that they started putting people on the island, different diseases started coming in, they started trading alcohol and drugs, they didn't have this in their immune system, and they're a dying out race now. This is kind of the same as what's happening to Indigenous people. The things that are really going against Indigenous people in this country, it's the same thing that's happening to everybody else in this country, but they're particularly vulnerable to it because they're poor and because they're kind of just like, you know, not in this society. They're not of it kind of, you know, like they're not really trying to integrate into cities or whatever. And that's cool. And I completely want them to keep living that traditional lifestyle. That's mad. You know, but the thing is, it's like usually what is fucking them over mining companies that are pushing them out of their their areas to mine. That's once that's one thing that's hitting them, like gutting their funding by five hundred million dollars. That's a, a bunch of test kits that are going out. And there's a lot of like tropical diseases up there that we just aren't susceptible to. Right. Like shit like malaria and stuff. That's a problem for them. Leprosy. Leprosy is still a fucking problem for them. But this is not because they're black. That's not the reason. The reason is because they live in remote areas. That's a huge issue. Alcohol, massive issue. So this is a whole thing that I'm always saying when it comes to hipsters, right? When they're talking about, you know, like everybody's racist and cops are going out to kill them and stuff. So it's like, dude, you talk to any indigenous elder, they'll tell you alcohol is a huge problem in these areas. And what happens when the liberals are in? The alcohol industry writes what the alcohol regulation in this country will be. They just let them in and they do it. Again, not not actively trying to destroy indigenous people. It's about money, mm. right? And they know that alcohol, like uh, aboriginals will spend a lot of their money on on the like alcohol, right? Okay. So they try and get rid of dry zones. So this is a subject I basically know nothing about. Uh, didn't John Howard have an initiative where he went into... Indigenous communities military intervention took the alcohol and pornography yes but it was part of like a wider operation and he was using this as an example like look the reason that he went in there with military intervention which just absolutely ruined the indigenous population like it it really was a traumatic thing and that's something that you can say was heavy-handed but again uh, I think personally John Howard's intentions were motivated by two things one as soon as that happened, they found a bunch of like rare earths that they wanted to find in that area and those people were moved out and they were kind of just put in an orderly area. So you can you can absolutely say that was a military o- occupation. But I will extend this to John Howard. Having read that man's books, 
And, you know, he didn't say sorry or whatever. He didn't believe in the symbolism. He probably wasn't the most sensitive man to Indigenous issues. Tony Abbott was in his uh, cabinet, though, and Tony Abbott really cares about Indigenous issues. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely say that about him. Look, I don't think that uh, John Howe is particularly sensitive or receptive to Indigenous people, but again, I don't think he was a racist. I don't think he was trying to... I don't think he was sitting there. I think in his mind, he thought that doing that was actually going to help Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But this is another thing that happens a lot with Indigenous societies, right? There's a lot of, like, we're going to just go and do this to them and, like, we're we're trying to help them in this way. But it's like the Andalese with the Indians. The Indian government is trying to help the Andalese people. But every time they try and help them, they actually make it worse. It's it's a... It's it's like a... it's, it's, It's a different, completely different culture... It goes to something, it, it, it says something about the general mood of tribalism today, which is that people assume that uh, uh, your critics or the people who are on the side that are ideologically opposed to you have malicious intent, where in most of the situations, they want the same goals as you, they just have different means to get there. Yeah. And you can definitely say that some people are going to have more uninformed goals and they're going to have less receptive ones. And as always, I'm always like, obviously, my answer always is just going to be vote Labor. But honestly, particularly if you believe in indigenous issues, look, you want to reduce the incarceration rate in this country. I didn't know this. It's just something that I looked at recently. You know, we have the highest private prison population in the world. 18%. So America, everyone's always going like, oh, fuck, American systems fucked with all in private prisons. That's 8%. But if you're in a private prison... The, the automatic incentive for you as an owner of a private prison is to keep people in jail because that's how you make your money. And so what do you do? You cut back on staff because, A, you're trying to like, you know, maximize profit. So every person that you have to pay for in there is just going to eat away at that profit. So instantly you're just going to cut it back to a bare bone to the point that I was reading a coroner's report about an indigenous death in there. And he was just like shocked, a coroner, a battle-hardened coroner who looks at all the most gruesome deaths you could ever imagine, went in and looked at the conditions of, um, I think it was Junie Prison owned by GEO. Is this just in New South Wales? Or? In New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Looked, at the, look at, looked at the conditions there. Like no like, basic medical supplies were missing. Um, no uh, mental health programs to speak of. There was like barely even a doctor there. He was kind of just like in and out. This is a private prison. How is it even profitable? Where because, do they? Or does the government pay them? Yeah, the government gives on... them the budget based on how many people they're dealing with, and that the whole point that they say is we're trying to save money um, because we think that private, always the same thing, private companies can do it more efficiently. All it is is a handout to donors like Serco and GEO, because as soon as those people. Like, if you don't have people in there, like, you know, mental health professionals, you don't have guards there. Guards help a lot with reducing hangings, right? If you have enough guards patrolling to see if someone's hanging themselves, that, mm. that reduces the amount of deaths. All of these things, all of those things fly out the window. That's where basically an increased efficiency uh, probably correlates to just lower human rights. Less yes. human rights. Way less human rights. Uh-huh. There's no oversight in these prisons. Yeah. In fact, they sign all these contracts that say that and yes, governments criminals, can't go in and check. But they still deserve... Uh, dignity when they're in prison. They deserve, and also on top of that, the whole aim of prison is to rehabilitate. 
And all they're doing is just serving their sentence, and it is in their interest to not have people rehabilitating these poli- uh, these prisoners. In fact, just sitting around with a bunch of other fucking murderers, thinking about how they can devise more efficient murders. So really all you're doing is creating monsters when they leave. And that helps them, because all a, a return a return inmate is just a return customer to them. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see recidivism's rates have skyrocketed since the last report. So a, a huge factor of Indigenous people being incarcerated. Again, it's not that they don't care that they're Indigenous. It's bigger than this. They care that it's another body that they can have in prison. It's got nothing to do with their skin colour. It's so... This is the other thing that I hate about all this stuff of just like, it's race and it's just so one-dimensional. It's so... Sim- it's what you're saying is so simplistic. It's it, it like it's, it's so non-big picture. It's... It's like the exact opposite. If you wanted to even solve that problem, you're not even looking at it in the right way. Mm. And in t- like what we were just discussing there with like helping indigenous people. I really actually do think that that is one of the things that uh, the Liberal Party has contributed, the very few things that they've contributed that is decent to the indigenous debate, which is trying to shape the image of what an indigenous person is, which is that, you know, as, as I've, I've been saying, I've just been focusing, as everybody does, on just these rural communities or whatever. But as you're pointing out as well, a lot of them just live in fucking cities. <laughs> you know, they just go to university and shit. It's, it's not this... They're trying to shape the image, and that is the one yeah, good thing that I like think... Like any the other race, is, they're not a monolith. They're not a monolith, and they're just going about their lives. I think that that's another thing, because I, I really hate this this mentality that a lot of the press seems to have in a particular type of like champagne liberal boomer that they're just like, oh, these poor people, we have to help them and shit. Like, you know, there's like that kind of thing. It's really demeaning. And it's actually not what indigenous people are asking for. Indigenous people are kind of, they're asking for a few rudimentary things that are just getting repeatedly denied to them while they just march in the streets being like, we have to change the date. Dude, look at the stats. The average indigenous person doesn't give a shit about the fucking date and the flag. You care about that because you're a fucking poser that sits around in like lavish luxury and don't have the intelligence or discipline to look into things deeper. So you just go for the most skin deep things you can look for, mm-hmm. you know, changing flags, uh, uh, you know, uh, an issue that might be. Uh, Do you think in the same way that there was uh, the apology, there's uh, symbolism that comes with changing the date? But look, and maybe not just symbolism, but. Um, a step towards reconciliation? Maybe. That might be true. I honestly think the same thing about, sorry, like, look, if if the Indigenous community, if I was Prime Minister and the Indigenous community was coming to me and there was just like that, uh, I can't remember what it's called, like the Indigenous Assembly or whatever it was, it's just like 500 different Indigenous nations coming together and they were saying, we want you to say sorry for the stolen generation. I'd be like, yeah, fine, whatever. You know? It's, it's no, no skin off my nose whether they get that apology or whatever. But like, you know... I would think that the things that would be much more important to these people would be $500 million more funding going into it. On top of that, because these people are great stewards of the environment, they're the only race in human history to improve the environment. Every other race is decried uh, de- or culture has made the, the, just completely wrecked the environment as soon as like humans have moved in. 
Aboriginals made a few errors like destroying a large bunch of, uh, I don't know, like, you know, mega kangaroos and stuff like that. But then after that, they kind of learned how to improve the environment. There is a lot to be learning from them from that. And a lot of those budget cuts were things like the indigenous rangers. And that was something that was really important to controlling feral pests and mm. things like that, right? These are the things that they could be utilized. I think that would be really important to them. I think that also something like constitutional recognition. But this is the other thing. Everyone in Australia thinks that they should be recognized in the constitution, obviously. That, mm. That's not just something that's symbolic. That's legal framework that you're dealing with. And this is stuff like, you know, it goes both ways as well. Not only is it a legal framework of like, oh, okay, actually we recognize that you people were here and therefore you can sue for certain land rights, which I think would be great anyway because it like stops mining companies or puts another injunction in mining companies. But the other thing is that like it goes both ways. There's also the thing of like indigenous people every now and then they'll commit a homicide and then they'll go to court and then they'll say, I'm not recognized in the constitution. And they're right. And so it has to go all the way to the high court, wasting all of these court's decisions for them to just say, no, this is bullshit. You're clearly an Australian. You have to like face trial for this, you know, like alleged murder or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. These are all things that are a problem because of no constitutional recognition. And I think that, you know, obviously, if you're talking about symbolism, that's the thing that you should be doing. Just saying that, like, no, there was people here before settlers came here because currently the constitution doesn't recognize that like really changing the date for australia day it's, it's ridiculous it's i really think that it's just like there's there's if, if you wanted to do something symbolic there's other things you could do that would be actually like you know important do you think it's the same thing as uh like you said if the indigenous community came up to you as prime minister and said we would like you to apologize if they're coming up and saying we would like you to change the date mm couldn't you say the same argument? Oh, well, yeah, and I sure. will. Oh, yeah, because it again, it's just like completely irrelevant to me when we celebrate Australia Day. And but the thing is, you look at the statistics: seventy percent of them don't even care if it's changed or not. It's like thirty percent that really want it changed. I think that was the stats. I'm going to have to look back at it. But like the last time that they polled the Indigenous population, after there was this massive media onslaught of just like we're supporting genocide, but after the like the the year before that, they're all just being like, "What celebrities are celebrating genocide?" It was just flavor of the month stuff. It's not really most indigenous people in their day to day life don't give a shit that it's supported on Australia Day. I'm sure there are some, but look, and there is some obviously, but it's not this monolith of people saying we want the date changed. Yeah, changing the date isn't some uh, final solution. It's not some final solution, probably, and probably on top of that, use I that just <laughs> but <laughs> but I just, yeah, dude, I just really don't like the fact that. Yeah, first of all, I find these tactics distractionary anyway. But like, it's just shallow. Look, I don't have the depth of knowledge of uh, indigenous issues that you clearly do. But all I can attest to is what I'm seeing on social media in the last week and a half is shallow as fuck. It's shallow as as fuck. And we've consistently talked on this podcast about how the social justice mentality and the anti-social justice movement is slowly dying. This is the strongest I've ever seen it. And I've been well immersed in these issues for the better half of a decade. I've never seen it as lopsided as this. I wonder why. You know what I think it is? I think it's because they made it an Indigenous issue, which I think is disrespectful anyway to Indigenous people to begin with, to just lop them in as like, yeah, you're the same as African-Americans. I think they're like as genetically different as you could possibly 
imagine them to be. Culture I think is... I'm closer to an African American than they are. I think yeah, like when I'm you look probably at the genetics of it. A... African-American. No, I'm probably close. Indians would probably be closer to... Oh, yeah, because yeah, the, the migration day. down from like Indonesia or whatever. Yeah. yeah. True. So it's just like, it's so weird that they're saying that. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. It's just like, it's, it's... It's what you said. It's those kind of champagne liberal slash socialists who like to see themselves as saviors and almost and have also this don't like doing perverse uh, interest in actually keeping different races as um victims it's just it's disgusting to be honest yeah it is really weird i don't understand why this like little fetish has emerged recently and it's the same with the um lgbt and all of these cultural issues when you genuinely look into the statistics or at least analyze culture and behaviors these are basically non-issues. Yeah, it's this um, me- it's this mentality that if the outcomes are different for various groups, that must be evidence of uh, some sort of systemic injustice and bias. Now, it could be, but let's do a proper analysis of that. Yeah, let's look at culture. Let's look at behavior. Let's look at class. It's not talked about much. So it's really shallow at the end of the day. Yep. In your degrading meritocracy by putting all these quotas, I know this is a separate issue, but that is the um, ultimate goal of this uh, whole mentality. When you put all these quotas in, you essentially just degrade a meritocracy. And that's really dangerous. Yeah. It's, well, it's just a bureaucratic layer of nepotism. And there's enough of that in the world as it is. And look, all of the research shows as well, when they say there's strength in diversity, yes, the research backs that up. But look, organic diversity, it shows also that when you just impose uh, quotas onto any field, and look, we would be most versed in this than most because I reckon like the entertainment industry in general was like hit the hardest with that, right? I've heard oh, stories, yeah. right? Yeah. In Australia in particular. Right? Yeah. And I've, I've heard stories from other friends that I have in mainstream media or whatever, right, where they're writing a comedy and they've done all the hard yards to get there. They've pushed themselves. It's not like they came from rich places. A lot of the comedians that I know were poor when they were growing up and even poorer when they were trying to make it as comedians or in anything in, the, in that kind of industry, right? Then they're writing this comedy show. Then the network comes in and says, you need to have a woman on board. Yeah. So they just get some woman that has no actual, like hasn't done the effort, right? And it's again, like what we both agree with, there's definitely funny female comedians. Mm -hmm. But just this thing of like, you have to randomly pluck out some woman, right? And then they just give them a list and they say, these are the ones that we normally use. And they're just a, they're just a like statistic of that quota. So they, they, they have this guaranteed job that's put them there. So they actually don't have any comedic skills. You know what I hear what happens to this all the time? That, 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 that like quota woman that they've just arbitrarily put into this position that hasn't earned it, 
She'll sit there. She'll just blab her mouth. Usually it's just sexism, 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 sexism. Do you have anything else to say? No, no, no. no. I just think that like, you know, that's the only subject that I can talk about. They just talk about that. Um, They just politely sit there and listen to them for a week. They go away. They collect their paycheck. They're officially a writer on the show or whatever. And then Mm. they just go back to writing the show. So they've just wasted a week of their time listening to someone that shouldn't be there. It's offensive. That's what quotas are. It's actually offensive to assume that I can't get somewhere that a white male can because of my skin color. It's weird. I'm pretty sure I can. Yeah, and that's the other thing as well. It's just like, and you did because you actually looked at the market and you came across a niche for yourself. You just sure. did what you're supposed to do to get there. And there's something get there by whining. There is something to be said about uh, uh, appealing to different demographics. Don't get me wrong, but when you just put in these arbitrary quotas and assume that this is the best possible way to uh, create art or to do a job, you're taking away so many other factors that can contribute to great art and doing a good job. Well, as we both know, comedy is a skill. As we've always said in this in this podcast, right, it's not like we're the funniest people on earth, but we've spent a lot of time honing that skill. Yeah. When you're just putting in quotas, you're just putting in people that haven't. They mm. haven't done the hard yards. So it's actually like a huge detriment to art to do that. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what happened on The Tonightly. It was just this thing of diversity. The entire thing was diversity. Look at it. It was a pile of shit. It was a terrible show. Mm-hmm. This is like a, a universal thing that is happening across entertainment. So, so again, to play uh, devil's advocate, people would say, well, there's already a bias that exists against other groups that aren't white men or, or white people. So the only way to fight against that is to have those quotas. Don't you think that's a myth, though? I've seen a lot of people in my life that are women or people of colour that have gone way ahead in my life than, than, than I have. And it wasn't even because of these quotas. It was just because of nepotism. But on top of that, even if they were like... Uh, I, I just, like, I, I, it's never occurred to me once as a white man to just sit there and think, like, I'm not going to hire that person because they're a woman. The argument is that hired, it's, uh, it's a subconscious bias. But that's a load of shit. Like, how do you know what's going on in my head in the first place? The other thing is, I've hired female writers in the past. And you know what? The fact that they're a woman was zero. It accounted for precisely zero of why I hired them. Mm-hmm. It was because they were funny. I don't know, man. Like, it's it's like one of the... I fully understand why the average Australian is so pissed off by the idea of quotas and diversity because it's just Mm -hmm. this cramming thing, again, always from bourgeois people. Like, I'm doing this video at the Mm. moment. Funny's funny. Can I just add a quick point there? Because, look, maybe um, previously there was a point to be made, so I can only attest to my personal experience... Um, when I was, I think, 14, 15, so this would have been 12 years ago, uh, I had an acting agent and there, there was this gathering of all the other uh, child actors and I asked one of the casting directors, hey, uh, what's going to happen to me because I have dark skin or whatever? And they said, oh, look, unfortunately, it will be a bit harder for you. They're going to put you in this thing called the exotic pile, <laughs> which is <laughs> fucked, actually, when you think about it. So pile. that that... Look, I would have qualms with that because that's not a meritocracy. Why am I being judged differently because of the color of my skin? But the way to solve that is then not to judge people 
by the color of their skin. <laughs> you don't then say, okay, well, because your brand will put you in this show. Nowadays, which it's, it's in the space of a decade, I've mm. now, I now get messages saying, oh, hey, I've written this show and then I just realize everyone's white. Do you want to be a part <laughs> oh, of no. it? Get the fuck out of it. No, I'm not going to fill your fucking quota. If I'm good enough, put me in. If I'm not good enough, criticize me as you would a white man. Like, I don't want to be put on a pedestal because my melanin level is slightly different to someone else. It's insane, isn't it? It, it, you, don't, you don't fix discrimination with more discrimination. No. It's bizarre. And also... It's it, degra- in fact, it's more degrading than... I don't know, like, if I'm going to get called a curry muncher or something like that. Yeah, whatever, that's annoying. But if someone's going to be like... Oh, so sad. You're brown. Oh, feel so bad for you. That is worse. Yeah. <laughs> You're making me into some kind of baby. And assuming still, I have no agency. And then it's also still discrimination against you. It is. Yeah. You're treating me differently. You're assuming all these things because yeah, of my and skin it's also color. Like, I'm not putting you on this show because I like you or I think you're talented. You're there just because you're brown. That's it. That yeah. was that was the entire casting decision. Yeah. Dude. Like, and th- that's the whole thing. Like, honestly, I think that somebody like you who actually strives to be good at your craft, if you were just buying into that, those easy outs, it would make you a worse comedian. Because you'd have realize after a while, I just have a guaranteed job in life. There's nothing mm. that I can do. Like, it's that same thing that people always talk about of like going to Cuba or the Soviet Union where things just started getting really unproductive because everyone realized they just had a job for life and there was no going up or going down in society. It was just staying at that level. And so people just stopped doing their job. Mm-hmm. It like robs you of any incentive, right? Now, obviously, you know, like I think our society's gone way too far in the other direction. But like, you know, and now it's just weirdly gone on to this superficial fixture of race and gender and just focusing on that. And then if you are going to... Uh uh, treat people differently because of their supposed hardships because of the group that they've been born into. Why just stop at race and gender? What about class? Yeah, why does it always stop there? Yeah. That's very interesting. The economic disparities Shows. are probably more pronounced than anything else. Yes, I have dark skin. I was very middle class growing up. I'm sure someone who was white that was really poor didn't have the same opportunities as I did. And yeah, I, I then dealt with people saying, yeah, we're going to put you in the exotic pile or whatever and uh, how's the curry or whatever, you know, all those kind of barbs. And that's not nice. I agree. Like, yes, that should not happen. But at the end of the day, one, how does that make up your entire identity? The assumption that as a person of color, your entire identity is just constantly being offended by everything white people say and you're in fear of your life from the police. Like, this is so degrading. My life is great. And I would even say my life would is better here in Australia than it probably other, otherwise would have been in many other countries. Yeah. Again, I'm not saying there aren't problems, but let's analyse all the factors that contribute to these disparities and mm. not just shout anyone down who... Uh, has an opposing viewpoint. Or somebody who just basically brings up facts. Well, that, that's it. That's a, an opposing viewpoint is just facts yeah, now. Yeah, facts. Mm. Facts is the opposing view. It was so... The, the last week has just been um, 
incredibly frustrating as uh, as someone who, like I said, we, we've been talking about how oh, this whole social justice thing is dead now. It's over. In fact, we yeah. were making fun yeah, of the people we were. who were still mocking it. But we like I said this, and not just the Australian, one, the people posting about uh, the events in America as well, this is the worst I've seen it. And like I said, I've been really interested in these issues for, for about six, seven years. And this is the worst I've seen it. And, and it, will work in, it, it will always work in the favour of uh, culturally right-wing political parties. Yeah, of course. Well, actually, no. This is something that I was thinking about. I think that this might be... Because this is the whole thing, right? Like, I'm just looking at this from the framework of, like, Chomsky's propaganda model, right? Why are they focusing on riots? If you weren't making this a massive national story, the riots would probably just be secluded to... And again, I don't know where it is, but it would just probably be secluded to wherever it happened. But it just spread like wildfire across the country. That is the result of deliberate coverage. Go go on uh, with your point. Well, yeah, look, about the riots. I think that it's the same thing that happened in the OJ trials, and this is just historical fact, right? OJ Simpson clearly guilty of sin. How did his lawyers get him off? Basically, by making it a racial issue. They moved it away from the fact of whether or not he's a murderer, and then they just moved it into is the American justice system inherently biased against black people? And this was because this guy had the money to do that, to get the lawyers that did that, according to all these favours in the media. And so it just sparked a huge public outcry into it, which kind of got to the point where the jurors were just inherently naturally biased towards O.J. Simpson, right? Sure. Um, all of that stuff happened. So I think... Mm. I, I would think that this is would, would be of benefit to the Democrats. And again, I, it's like, look, I would prefer if the Democrats are in, so I'm happy that it's, it's happening anyway. But like, it's, I, I think that, you know, if the top 10 richest people in the world are all posting, I can't breathe, something's going on. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying like, this guy didn't die or whatever, but why now? That's mm. the big question. Mm. And then when you even look at the statistics of unarmed deaths in America or even Australia, it doesn't take into account the events that occurred prior to that death. The assumption is they're all exactly like the George Floyd case. They may not be. They may not have been that blatant. They may, they may, ha- there may have been a suspicion that the person they were pursuing had a weapon on them. And then you have to give the benefit of doubt to the to the police. Like I said previously in this podcast, if I was a police officer in America, in a society where I knew everyone had guns and I was doing my job and someone was being aggressive towards me and they were within close proximity to me and they weren't listening to me and they reached under their shirt, what am I meant to do? In a society where everyone has guns, what am I meant to do? I would shoot. Mm. Right, it's well, harsh. No, it's definitely harsh. Who wouldn't? Uh, look, uh, and look, you're probably right, but I'm just going to put this in the cushioning of let's just keep that as hypothesis yes, because we I haven't know. really looked at the That's, stats of it. Of course, of but course. like I'm, I'm that I am on board with that hypothesis. I reckon if you looked into the stats, that's probably the case. 
that's that's yeah. So like, there's there's definitely that at play there. It's probably. It just it like you know, and I hate the phrase like common sense, but it probably is like it's it's pretty common. Yeah, I know. Sense, this is two weeks ago. We were just mocking everyone who uses all these phrases and yeah, talks about, against thing, right? like social, social justice yeah. whereas and then this entire podcast. <laughs> Fucking social justice. Can't they use common sense? But read the facts. <laughs> We haven't right. read the facts when it comes to the US. This is not like in yes. Australia. We haven't read the facts, so we Granted, don't know. Yeah. But it just, I'm just it making makes that sense. point. Yeah, and and quote, the, you know the quote unquote right of the culture was they are the more logical and reasonable ones when it comes to issues of race, culture, and gender. Mm. That's why people would constantly look at Ben Shapiro. And I wouldn't really call Jordan Peterson. They put them in the same box. They're so vastly different. But Candace Owens. Yes, people like that. They are the ones who are actually just being reasonable in these situations. And the people that hate them so much, well, congratulations. You've revived their careers. You, I bet you you look at their numbers yes. and you look at Crowders. I reckon it's just through the roof at the moment. Yeah. So if that's your enemy in mm. life, <laughs> this isn't the way to go about yeah, it. I, and, and Look, I don't know if it would actually... All it will do is uh, further divide the tribal division. So the people who were already on Trump's side will just be further on Trump's side and the people who were on the uh, Democratic side would just be further emboldened in their support of the Democratic Party. I don't know if it'll work in either one's favor because now when the rhetoric is defund the police, I mean, that's a scary prospect for uh, a lot of people. And I assume a lot of Americans as as well. As long as there is not the blowback, because like what you were saying, it was just uh, unanimously on the side of Black Lives Matter. You would imagine that that would be in favor of the Democrats when it comes to the next election, but it depends on whether or not the tide turns. Sure. And there's kind of like a cultural backlash or whatever. And this like a witch hunt where, or do you think, do Black Lives Matter? Say it, say it. If you don't say it, you're part of the problem. I mean, do Black Lives Matter? Yes, of course they do. But the Black Lives Matter movement is different. There, are, There is another political ideology associated with that. Now, for the most part, they talk about police reform and, and things like that. I wouldn't have any... Again, I'm an Australian, but I wouldn't have any reason not to support them. But their whole narrative that this is purely targeted to black people and that black people are just being hunted down in the same way indigenous people are just being hunted down by these racist police officers it's it's just the statistics don't back it up it's as simple as that mm. and then this other uh, this other notion that like oh well people only act with um contempt towards the police because they're scared of the police so the people that are going up to the police being like oh fuck you you pigs you fucking dogs fuck you now this is regardless of race that's not fear <laughs> That's disrespect. Okay. I'm scared of ISIS. I'm not going to go up to ISIS. Well, fuck you, you fucking dogs. <laughs> you don't have oh, shit fucking me. ISIS. <laughs> That's disrespect. That's not fear. So don't act like there's this instilled fear among everyone who treats the police like that. Yeah. That's not fear. You can, you can say that maybe it's distrust. But it's it's not fear. It's resentment. You can say that. Sure, there are many things you could describe it as, but <laughs> fear is not fear one. Fear is definitely not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> if you're scared for your life, you don't you don't try to provoke. <laughs> you know, I don't try to provoke a lion because I'm I'm no. scared of a lion. Yeah. 
common sense. It is just common sense, sure. isn't it? It's like this same point. Actually, Sam Harris talks about it all the time. It's just like, dude, if a cop ever comes up and pulls up to you, don't put your hands in your pockets. He's just like, that would stop so many deaths instantly. It's actually your point. He, I, I remember this from years ago, so I'd have to go and re-listen to it. But I was listening to his podcast, and he was talking about this when it's all flared up. I don't know, mm-hmm. like 2015 That's or That's the other thing. People forget about everything that happened in 2016. It was identical. Right, right. And it just, yeah, it goes through waves and bounds. And dude, this is the other thing as well about like Black Lives Matter. Man, I love how this is the, this is the, the, cam- the straw that broke the camel's back that as soon as it was like going on in the US. But their government is responsible for things like, you know, what we were talking about before of installing Robert Kagame into Rwanda, who went on to kill 5 million Congolese people. And they don't even know that that exists. What I'm saying is, and just to bring it back to that point, the fact that Black Lives Matter exists, you have to admit, to some degree, is a media invention and therefore is manipulation of the public. It's just they're making them focus on that one tiny death there, but all of these deaths don't matter. And the mm-hmm. whole thing is, I'm saying, if you actually did care about black lives mattering and stuff, instead of just looting shit and stealing Lexus, is, you should have been voting for Bernie Sanders in the last election, like when you had the opportunity to in the primaries. It would have solved so many of these problems. All of these things, I think, as is the same thing in Australia. A lot of these things is a result of economic uh you know you, you know like an economic system that is set up to drain money out of poor working class backgrounds regardless of whether they're black or white or whatever if you get rid of that tension and pressure if you instead of defunding the cops how, how about this is an idea how about you give them more funding i i reckon that that would be the exact opposite problem i reckon it is a result of a severe lack of underfunding and that they, they would have like a, a lack of training these are all economic issues a lot of these things would be solved if you just took more care about who you were electing into government, right? You actually looked at what their policies were. It's the same thing here. All this idea of like protesting, I think it's just like ineffective most of the time. Try campaigning next time. I think that's the way it's to do it. It's fashionable. It's fashionable. That's the whole thing. You it's get like, to post on dude, Instagram. Yeah, if you actually put up, and I know obviously I'm going to say that, but if you put this up, as your Instagram post of like, I'm voting Labour. That would do so much more than just a black screen. But it's not cool to do that. But they're the ones that are going to cut, shut down a bunch of private prisons that would reduce the Indigenous incarceration rate. That would get the result. It's not sexy. It's not cool. But that's how these things actually go about. It's like changing the people that are the decision makers and who's putting in the inquiries and commissions. It's boring bureaucratic legwork that you don't even want to be bothered to look into. Like, that that's the things that solve these problems. Yeah, yeah all the celebrities getting clout for posting a black square. What does that do? What does it do? All this, um, this social media activism. I had a joke about this uh, when, you know, after the Paris attacks, everyone put the peace sign over the Eiffel Tower and posted yeah. that. It's just like, what do you think? Do you think, do you really legitimately think People in ISIS are going to see your DP and and just, oh, they are right. We should stop. If there are racists out there, do you honestly think that because a bunch of 22-year-old Australians in a, it, so a different country posted a black screen, 
some racist in Mississippi is going to be like, oh, well, you, you know what? Yeah, better. <laughs> yeah, this was pretty far-reaching. I better burn that um, robe. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so shallow. I understand there's the solidari- solidarity aspect, but even that is a stretch. No, even that's really shallow. doing it to get likes. Yeah. You are. Yeah. And you're also doing it because you're manipulated by a bigger machine than what you clearly understand. I think that that's a huge component of it. It's Mm -hmm. like a machine that has figured out how to manipulate your narcissism to serve its purposes. And this is the saddest part when it comes to Australia. It is a machine that has figured out how to manipulate your narcissism for their purposes, and you're not even their direct target because you live in Australia. You're being manipulated by a machine that not, is not even aimed at you. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> and, just, and just really quickly, I mean, this is even, uh, I think, a point of agreement from the new left and new right, which is when you see these corporations changing their DP to black and white... And you think that is some amazing show of solidarity or the corporation is standing up for racial justice. No, no. What they're, they're a cop out. Even, you know, I mean, I'm not as um, strong on regulating corporations, but I can see that this is extremely shallow. Yeah. And, and anyone it's who... a marketing it, ploy. Anyone yeah. who is more inclined to buy a product from a company that changed its DP is an idiot, is truly an imbecile. My God. (laughs) But again, look, just to recap, there are indigenous issues that are real and there are tangible, boring, bureaucratic things that can happen tomorrow if you campaign to change the government and there's probably organisations that I'm not aware of because it's not my strong suit that you probably donate to that would be very beneficial to them. Okay. Um, But, look, the things that you're looking into are nowhere, like, at the very least, nowhere even close to the actual reality of the situation. Yeah, Um, and... And and just on Is it surprising when you're focusing on America? And sure. everything that we're saying about America, I just want to put that out. Both Neil and I haven't really looked into what the statistics and facts are in America, so we're not the most educated people to talk about it. That is all just guesswork. But when we're talking about the Australian picture, we it's have a entirely, more clear picture. I have looked at some statistics, and they uh, paint a similar sort of picture where um, there is a disparity, but when you account for crime committed... There's almost a disparity the other... There is a disparity the other way. Right. So... Right. But yeah, look, I will say I'm not an expert and there hasn't been this thorough report that I've read like we just did in this podcast. And I would also add just in a more general sense, when there is a disparity between different groups, it is not immediate evidence of uh, systemic injustice. And people need to stop assuming that. It, it could be that. I'm not denying that that could play a factor, but you have to analyze every other possible cause. Yeah. And like with virtually everything else, I really think the main issue is economic. It's not this, you know, you are not one of the cops in Minority Report that can read modern day cops today's minds. 
It's really bizarre to me that because that that's really what you're saying when you're saying that someone's sexist or racist. You're saying that I can read what your intentions are as opposed to what your actions were. Mm-hmm. I can I can put a motive behind them that you're denying, and I don't have a lie detector or anything in front of me. I'm I'm saying that the reason that you arrested that man is because he's Aboriginal. That's that's the reason that you arrested him. And look, you can't prove that. But there is things that you can do to reduce the amount of Indigenous people that are incarcerated. But like, you know, accusing public servants that are earning 50 grand a year of just being all secretly racist is like, yeah, that, that's not the way to do it. That's, that's the real crux of the issue here, I guess. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's if there was subconscious biases and, and racism, that's something that's virtually impossible to prove. Yeah. If it's subconscious. There are certain statistics that do, again, they, I'm not, this is not, it's like you have to be on one side or the other. I mean, I remember when I read that book, Freakonomics, when you'd send in, res, when people would send in resumes with stereotypically black names, they'd get far less interviews than people who sent in resumes with um, stereotypically white names. But it's not sexy to say this, but you have to analyze culture there as well. Mm. And then if it's just purely racist, you have to then control for other races. Because this is the other thing as well, right? Exactly what you're talking about with culture. Say that you're analyzing two black people and one of them is just dressed in like a checkered shirt with glasses and the other one is dressed like a gangster. And then they say to you, which one do you think is more likely going to be the murder? murderer? You're going to point to the gangster. But that's a cultural thing. That's not a skin thing. That's one of the factors mm-hmm. that is definitely there. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm imagining that that's also one of the other things that was in, in, involved in that Freakonomics. I, I haven't read anything about it, but like, you know, just, just from hearing about it, it sounds more likely to me that like, you know, if you're reading like Shaniqua's and stuff like that, you're imagining that they're probably going to be from like inner city Chicago or whatever. And so you're just going to be like, no. But mm. the same thing is that, you know. And that is, and look, if, if this Shaniqua ha, uh, isn't anything like that stereotype, I understand the, the anger there because that's really not fair on her. It's not fair on her. Yeah, no, but I don't, I also that. don't think that that's racist. I don't think that they're saying, we're not giving it to you because you're African. I think they're saying it to you, like, we're not giving it to you because you're hood. I think that's what they're saying there. Yeah, I mean, you have to uh, analyze for that possibility. Don't you think, that's like, even when say. it comes to like Australian, like white names or whatever, if you got like an Angus and you had like a Gus, you're gonna choose Angus. Why? What because would like it's just imply? like you know, like rural names, like Graham or something like that. You're just gonna be like, well, he's probably a dumbass. But he might not be a dumbass, but like just on a quick glance, if you just heard something like Malcolm as opposed to Graham, you're going to go with Malcolm. If you go really bogan names, maybe like, um, I don't know. like Tyson. Yeah, <laughs> Malcolm versus Tyson. Tyson yeah. you know? Which one yeah. are you going to choose? Yeah. See, I think that, look, we're going to run out, but like, yeah, it's, it, I think that as Neil is actually pointing out, I'm a huge proponent of it. Yeah. I think Neil articulates it really, really well because he's obviously thought about it a lot. But that I, I fully agree with you there. I really think that a motivating, the primary motivating factor there is cultural. It's not a racial thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I would just say that um, 
The point I'm making is that you, you just have to analyze for those things as well before we can yeah. make presumptions. Yeah, 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 fair, yeah. fair, exactly. But anyway, uh, thank you for listening. You subscribe if there's any podcast <laughs> that we've ever done that could uh, Man, generate the even most. Even the camera on yeah, the right <laughs> just turned black yeah. in protest. So we'd have to do some, uh, <laughs> some editing here. Um, thank you, guys. Subscribe. Thank you.